And here's what I saw most of my career in the corporate world, in the different companies, right? Many people would get bypassed for promotion, not because they were not smart or hardworking. They, they couldn't connect personally with senior management. They couldn't communicate confidently, and they definitely didn't want to stand out. And so I decided I'm going to design a program that teaches people what I call the obvious to them because they either didn't know it or didn't know how to do it or didn't want to do it. So if, if the organization had a group of people that they wanted to you know, be a little bit more visible to senior management, then they hire me, I'll come in, do the program, and I'll do this. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, really had an enjoyable interview with today's guest, Stephen Krempel. Now, I found out in the middle of it, Stephen actually has got Hungarian roots, even though he grew up in Singapore. He said, how's that possible? And of course, as a fellow Hungarian, I, we uh, connected right away. Now, Stephen has written the book, The 5% Zone. I won't give away all the different components there, but it's really about how many people who uh, work hard don't necessarily get promoted or get noticed, and he really goes through the different components on that. Now, uh, Stephen has quite a stellar career where he was vice president of Yum Brands, and so, you know, they have like the Kentucky Fried Chicken or something like that underneath them. In fact, that brand had a million employees or franchisees around the world, so that that is a pretty big uh, role that he had there. And then he actually was the chief learning officer at Starbucks as well. So we have a lot of interesting twists and conversation pieces as part of it. So uh, please enjoy this show. Now, before we get into that, I just want to encourage you that you're important, that you matter, yet at the same time, the most important person for you to work on is yourself. And so at Syrgy, we have all these tools and resources to serve you. We've now really expanded all our online courses and offerings. And so the one that we're really mentioning today is what do you really value? But we have one, you know, why aren't you more like me? Or another course, Dying to Live, or the Quest for Purpose. And on it goes with other courses as well. So my encouragement is, is that, you know, invest in yourself or help others on your team to invest in themselves so that they can be clear about who they are, so that they can get noticed and that you can be in this top 5%. So just working hard isn't going to be enough. Uh, working on yourself, working smart, but also being noticed is also very, very important. So thank you as always for listening. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. So thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. Here's our guest, Stephen Krempel. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. You know, when we think about the ultimate performance, how can we get to the top 5%? Well, today's expert is going to help us with that, with his brand new book, The 5%. The 5% zone, pardon me. And he comes not that far from me. He's just south of our area in Washington State. And Stephen Kempel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, you're, uh, you're welcome. Now, 
Stephen, as um, most of the Secrets of Success listeners know, we always get into people's story before we get into their expertise. Sure. <laughs> uh, and so we were just talking off air that before you moved to the U.S. and to Washington State, you were actually uh, a Singaporean. That's right. For those people who are not aware, somebody from Singapore. Uh, so you were born there. So just give us the story there about sort of your heritage and growing up in that space. Well, the, the first thing is uh, I can say, Ken, is there are not too many Kremples in Singapore. <laughs> that name is uh, not a typical Singaporean name. As we know, most Singaporeans are Chinese, and then you have a, you know, a big population of Malays and Indians and then others. Uh, so for most of my life, I grew up uh, on my identity card, which we have in Singapore. I was an other it was kind of strange. Uh, my father was Hungarian, my mother was Malaysian, and then they ended up in Singapore uh, uh, around World War II when it broke out. So, Well, and just so you know, uh, Keys is actually Keish, and uh, all four of my grandparents came from Hungary to Canada. Oh, in the first that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, connection right here. We found out right now, though. <laughs> yeah, we could be related, Stephen. We don't even know it. So, exactly. Uh, cool. So what did your dad do? What was it that he was doing uh, in Singapore? Well, uh, as you know, um, he was actually part of the uh, Budapest uh, uh, Academy of Music. So he was a classical musician. And uh, way before, I guess it was a couple of years before World War II broke out, uh, he left uh, Hungary. Uh, kind of headed east with his merry band of uh, musicians. Uh, he was primarily a cellist, uh, but I think they had seven or eight of them. They went to Cairo. I think they went to uh, Bombay, went to uh, uh, Sri Lanka. And then by the time they hit Singapore, the war broke out and they remained. So that's kind of how he ended up in Singapore. Um, but he was a classical musician. Well, when you think about that, what are the odds of that, that I'm actually on the road doing concerts and then I just stay there? Now, yeah. uh, uh, pardon my um, uh, recall, your mother was from where? She was, a Malay she was born and raised in Malaysia her first few years, and then she ended up in Singapore. Singapore and uh, Malaysia used to be one country before Singapore broke off in 1965, so... Um, so essentially, they were from the same place. But yeah, most people don't know the story, Stephen. That um, Singapore actually was annexed from Malaysia and actually yep. asked to leave. Yeah. We learned that when we were there a few years ago doing work, and we did some work in Kuala Lumpur as well. Yes. And now they're probably regretting it. And said, "Well, what what did we do there?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a unique situation. So, what was life growing up like as an other? Well, um, actually, it was uh, pretty uh, pretty interesting because, uh, you know, most of my friends were uh, Chinese or Indians or Malays or, you know, every, most of the majority of the, the population, right? Um, there were, I think in my school, I can think of one or two other uh, people. Uh, we were called Eurasians because it's, a, you know, uh, a mix of uh, European and Asian. And um, so, yeah, it was quite interesting because, you know, at the time, we, we talk about diversity nowadays and all that. Mm -hmm. I never felt any different from my Chinese friends or any of the other races at all. We were all right. friends, though, right, in school. So, um, but that was uh, in, in Singapore. It was a very, uh, as you well know, you go there, it's a very 
well-structured country with uh, many rules that people tend to follow. So from the outside, if you are from a country that has maybe not so many rules, it looks kind of strict. But when you were living in it, you really didn't pay attention because you were just part of normal. So, so then um, after, now did your dad continue to be a musician? Is that was his thing that he continued when he was in Singapore? That's right. He, he continued to be a musician. He played, in fact, one of the things that kept him alive in World War II was because he was a classical musician, the uh, Japanese uh, officers would make them play uh, every Friday, I believe, uh, in the uh, Victoria Memorial Hall. And, um, and that's what kept him uh, <laughs> alive, so to speak, at that time. Uh, he would tell, I know my mom would tell stories of where uh, very senior officers would knock in the middle of the night and just tell him, play and they'll sit there close their eyes and he'll play his cello for an hour and then they leave and the next day they send food over so mm. interesting story well, uh, nice to have some uh, skills that were appreciated uh, exactly at that, at that time so um after you know we call it high school here what did you yep. do uh, in um i well uh, as you know, and uh, most Singaporeans have to serve uh, national service. So I spent two and a half years in the military uh, right after high school. Uh, and then uh, I came out and I worked for my brother who was already, uh, you know, he's 15 years my senior. So he's, he's been, he was the general manager of a company. I worked there for about two years to earn enough money so that I could pay for college. So, or university, as we say, you know, uh, most of the time, right? So your your folks weren't going to pay for you like some people are expecting here in North America. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, they didn't have, uh, they weren't going to pay for me, and I decided I wanted to go to the U.S. to go study. So I kind of conjured up my own uh, first years, uh, you know, fees and stuff, and then uh, went went off. So. It was an adventure from a very young age. So now, did you leave and come go to the U.S. for university, or did you I, stay in Singapore to do school? No, I, I did leave and go to the U.S. For, uh, to do university. So I actually ended up in uh, a university in uh, Hawaii called BYU-Hawaii. So everybody knows BYU in Provo. Uh, at, in those days, uh, we won't date ourselves here, but those days in the 80s, uh, anybody going to the Provo campus had to do a acclimatization kind of a one semester in BYU Hawaii. But after landing Hawaii, I'm going, why do I want to go to Provo? <laughs> this place is pretty damn good, though. There you go, sun and beach and, and everything is fine. So I actually stayed there uh, for the rest of the uh, three years that I... You, you really didn't go to the U.S. for... No. You went to Hawaii. I'm sorry. I went to Hawaii, though. Technically, we can call it the U.S., but it wasn't really, right? Yeah, okay, no, I get that. You know, I'm thinking mainland, you were there. Uh, but almost, so almost half, went there. Yeah, you got halfway there, so that's pretty cool as part of it. What, were, what did you take in university? Um, I actually did a, a double degree in human resource development and accounting, though. The weirdest combination you can ever find, Ken. Well, there we go. So, well, I mean, hey, there are some people in human resources that have to do the numbers for personnel. What, yeah. was, dri what was driving that direction for you? What was causing your interest in that? Um, 
I actually, because part of my first two years, I, I had a uh, opportunity to train some of our distributors in the product that was, um, you know, that the company was selling. And I became, you know, nobody wanted to do it. And I was the, the ham, so to speak, to go up and talk and t teach the people about a product. And, you know, I, I found this whole human resource, human uh, resource development area really interesting. And when I hit the, uh, the university, they actually had a program in human resource development. And uh, one of the professors from Provo came over uh, and he said, you know, don't go to Provo. I'm here, though. You, you know, if you go to Provo, you'll be talking to my aides. Uh, not me. So it was a smaller university, but that created a very intimate uh, situation where you could meet the professors all the time and talk about stuff. In fact, I went on a couple of consulting gigs for him whilst I was uh, at the university. Cool. So you finished school in Hawaii, then what? I uh, went back to Singapore, though. Uh, and uh, that's where um, I started my journey um, in the corporate world, uh, joining Motorola, uh, and then Pepsi, and then by by that time I was uh, uh, we spun off and became Yum Brands, and I was sent on a three-year rotational assignment to Dallas, and uh, in 1998, and I've been here ever since. So, so you never went back. Now, when you said three-year rotation, with what company was that with? Uh, it was with Yum Brands. So Yum Brands is the franchise for KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Oh, there we go. Okay, well, you're helping my ignorance there. So that's perfect, Stephen. So you were going to Dallas. Why were they sending you there? Is it just that they appreciated to send their officers around the world? or? Well, you know, so here's part of, this, uh, part of the journey where this whole 5% uh, opportunity, uh, you know, came up. And we'll talk about that later. But imagine this, uh, Ken. I was in a conference, right, with a hundred of my colleagues around the world. And my boss's boss is presenting a new program that they're going to roll out in the company. Now, I'm looking and, and listening to this, and I know it's not going to quite work the way he's talking about it in, in Asia. So I decided to detach from the meeting I was scribbling on my uh, piece of paper, which I still have in the office right here. And then when I got the answer, boom, my hand went up, right? So you can imagine, right? Your boss's boss is speaking, and this clown is putting his hands up. So, you know, the guy goes, uh, yes, Krempel. They used to call me by my surname. Yes, Krempel. Uh, Dave, and here's what I said. Dave, I have something that will make your program even better. And then I said, do you mind if I come up and show you, though? Now, this is a big risk, right, Ken? you got 99 other people looking at you, telling your boss's boss that his program needs to be improved. So I went up there on the flip chart. I, I, I uh, kind of sketched it out. And then he turns to everybody and says, yeah, do you think this will be, you know, do you think this will be better, though? And, and everybody kind of nodded. And I went, right? I went back, sat down. At the end of the, the conference, he came to me and says, hey, would you mind be presenting this to my peers in Japan? You know, you know, I guess it was the next month or something. And fast forward the story, in four months' time, they decided that I would lead the international training uh, function in Dallas in the corporate uh, headquarters for the international division. 
and the rest is history though so so the one little swoop move i did in a meeting got me noticed so you could have got fired but i should have got fired that's right but to the credit of your boss's boss he didn't take this personally he wasn't offended by that and he was open enough and curious enough to listen to you well yeah and part of the trick ken is which i would was going to reveal later is i phrase the phrases or words i use positively see i could have said i could have put up my hand and said dave you know i don't think that stuff will work here in asia right you could you sound like a whining guy who says it doesn't going to work but i didn't say that i said dave i have something that will make your program even better now that's a total flip and one of the things we talk about because i i was lucky in fact, in my first uh, role in Motorola to learn this, and um, and that's a whole other story that I may get into if you, want, if you want me to tell you. But if you phrase it that way, most leaders are a little bit more receptive to listen, even though your idea is negative. Most people shoot themselves in the foot because they, they sound whiny and complaining as opposed to rephrasing the uh the the words to something a little bit more neutral or positive as we call it in the book Mm. well i mean it is important because uh, if you don't if you phrase it negative then the likelihood that somebody's going to be defensive is all the time right isn't it it's all the time it it was funny so it it, you mind can it get can i just tell you that motorola store where i actually learned this thing I, i think you can go ahead okay great so, so imagine this, I, I just joined the company and the, the human resource director, uh, let's call him Jason, and, and he says, hey, Krempel, uh, I'm going on a two-week road trip. I want you to analyze all our processes and tell me, you know, uh, what you think about them. I'm going, this is my opportunity, though, right? In the military, you know, I was good at finding problems and pointing them out. So this is my chance. So I was rubbing my... my uh, hands together and just chomping on the chance to do this, right? So two weeks later, he comes back and he goes, hey, Grumble, did you find anything else? I was waiting for this opportunity. I went and jumped in a meeting and said, Jason, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is missing, this is missing, and this is, you know, totally, you know, not according to our specification, short of saying, I don't know which idiot was here in this last position, but that person obviously didn't do anything. He kept quiet for two seconds, and then he said, I was in that position. <laughs> I was the last person in that position. I just put my foot in my mouth, though, right? Mm-hmm. And then he said this. Though. So it was a coaching moment for him, and he said, Krempel, just realize this. Though. In any meeting you go in Motorola, if there's a problem, the person that's running the meeting either probably caused the problem or is in charge of that problem. Do not say negative. So this is what you should have told me, though. You said, Jason, you know, there's so many opportunities to improve the processes in this, in this uh, department. If we did a tweak on this one, a change here, added this, at the department will be so much better. And I would have said, yes, Krempel, carry on, though, right? And from that day, I go, shoots, right? This guy has made a big point. And instead of trying to be smart and pointing out mistakes, you still point out the mistakes, but you, you articulate them in a very different way back to senior management. Though. 
So you phrase them more as opportunities versus issues. Yes, that's, that's right. You're moving towards something versus away from something. So the away from something or, or accentuating what is wrong, right? And, and this is the biggest deal. It's funny because, you know, when we used to run classes, live classes, back in the day, <laughs> last year, um, and this comes up as the biggest point because either people get it or they don't get it or they may be not exposed to it. And, and here's this, the, the thing that most people say. Well, Stephen, I'm a straight shooter. I'm going to shoot, you know, I'm going to shoot from the hip and tell it like it is because this is the way it is and my job is to point the, uh, the mistakes out. And I go, yeah, I know that, but most senior guys don't want to say it, don't want to hear it that way, even though they may say, you know, I want you to be frank and tell me like it is, though. okay? And if you step into that landmine on, or on that landmine, then you might blow up, though. Right, so they they're saying that they want you to be frank, but they also want you to say it as if you are going to solve the problem. Don't sound negative as if you are complaining. Right? Well, we all have a lot of problems. Well, they know that as well. Everybody knows that. That's why you were hired in the organization, and and that's a big deal that we make. So, no, I mean it makes sense, and it's. I mean, all of us have made that error of being direct and said, well, that really sucks or, you know, who's the idiot? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's just being disciplined with our language and our words. So, Stephen, you get transferred. Uh, you're in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, then, then what happened? Uh, then they sent me from the International Division to Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, as you uh, pronounce it, to corporate headquarters for Young Brand. So, uh, I went from the international division to corporate headquarters. And so, what were you doing there? What was your responsibilities? So the responsibility there was actually to build what they call Yum University. Though. So we took care of the top 3,000 people in the company, uh, both franchise and company-owned. And so we ran, de the design, developed, and delivered all the programs that help franchisees and or corporate people to build their businesses around the world. At that time, we had, I think the company, when I was there, had just under a million people that were part of the whole system, so. Well, that's a large, I don't want to call it workforce, but. Yeah, it is, right? You, you can imagine, right, so. Wow, okay, and then after that, what happened? Uh, after that, then, um, I was, uh, recruited to go to Starbucks, and that's why I'm in Seattle. Uh, and it was uh, an opportunity that uh, came forth, uh, and I decided to do that. And uh, I decided, we, even though I left Starbucks uh, several years ago, I decided to stay in the Northwest. Um, you know, it's either you like it or you don't like it in the Northwest, and, I, I, and we, the family here likes it. So... Okay, even though it does rain a little bit more than yeah, it does rain. You, you, Dallas, uh, pretty, most people don't similar, know that right? Dallas, Dallas has all these thunderstorms in the summer. Yeah, and, it does. Uh, well, you got all kinds of different problems, right? You know, whether it's in Louisville or in in Dallas, you got you know uh, tornadoes. Uh, you know, you got all kinds of other problems. Uh, we we get a little bit of rain, right, Ken? <laughs> yes, exactly. Not quite as much. So you get recruited to go to Starbucks. What was that experience like, and what were some sort of insights that you can share with the audience from there? 
Well, one of the things I can think you, you can tell, firstly, Starbucks was a uh, is a very strong brand and had very big impact uh, in many of the communities they used to go to um, or in open up their stores. And I think the the most interesting thing that we did at the time was um, we spent two weeks. So even before I hit headquarters, I was still in Louisville. Um, I had to do two weeks work as a barista. So to really get to know how it felt making the different uh, beverages and serving it to the, uh, you know, to the customers. And it was the most enlightening and the hardest work I've ever had to do is to, not because I'm standing up, but just to think about the myriad of different drinks and how much the customers knew their drink. Though. And, and, and I had, you know, people come in and go, uh, I'd like my coffee at 140 degrees, please. And I was thinking, really? Do you really know what 140 degrees is? And, and we would have thermometers to measure how hot it was. And I remember one time I served the, the customer and said, this is not 140 degrees. I'm going, oh, my goodness. These people really know their stuff. And this is just the temperature, not even talking about the different options of milk and, you know, all kinds of other stuff that they – different flavors they want to put into their coffee, right? So so when you say hardest, was it just because of the sort of expectations and all the moving pieces that, that are live and happening in the retail environment, or what, what was making it? Well, it's hardest because, so, so here's one of the insights that maybe people didn't realize about Starbucks and why you get, we get our customers coming back all the time. Starbucks allows you to customize your drink, though. You don't get the, you know, it's not the regular. So you can customize anything, right, from the milk to the, to the pumps to the number of shots to the whatever. That gives you the combination. And because the drink flavor profile becomes unique to you and to Starbucks, you go other places and the drink doesn't taste the same. So you kept coming, going back to Starbucks. But now think of it from a barista standpoint, and I'm new, right? And it's not like the same drink called the same thing, the caramel macchiato. Well, the caramel macchiato is probably the same. If they want extra this or extra that, i got to think of all the different things I have to put inside, right, the drink. And now it went from eight drinks to eight times eight. You have 64 combinations, probably times another uh, set of combinations, and you literally have to pay attention to what people are asking for, because at the end, when you serve it to them, they know whether you got it right or wrong. Mm. The other yeah. point is that, you know, at Starbucks, they don't kind of give a spiel on, you know, uh, good morning, welcome to Starbucks, may I have your drink, please, right? They encourage you to be, at least at the time I was, and I think it's still true, encourage you to say what you felt to the customer in front of you, though. So if you know the person, if you've seen them in before, you can say hi, right? You, so there's no script per se. And so everything is, and, and you learn from your buddy, right? So you have a training buddy, that person teaches you, you uh, model them, uh, and, and it kind of works. So it really works well. But, uh, you know, I take my hats off to the baristas because, you know, they really they really serve their customers well and they really know their drinks. So. so. Uh, mm. I just a slow learner, probably. Well, it, not everybody is suited for certain jobs, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, you knew that. The other one uh, around this is it's an interesting, as a listener of what you're saying there, 
they were allowing individuals to be people, not to be robots. Mm. And exactly. That is, uh, that's what made it more personable rather than it, this rote thing where how many times you get on a phone and then, you know, you just had a nice conversation with this customer service person and then they go into the script yep. as they say goodbye and said, well, what, what was that? And, and, and you can tell it's a script. So these people don't even know how to pretend it's not a script, right? It, they, they're literally reading it off and you can tell, right? So it's, it's, uh, mm. it's kind of funny. Um, but, you know, one of the things we say in the book is small things are big things. And these, then this is one of the small things that is a really big thing if you don't know that it exists. Um, and, and many people may not notice it, right? So, and, and those are the things that as a business or as an individual in a corporation, if you figure out what that small thing is, that is a big thing, then, then that's great because that's what people are going to know you for or notice you for, uh, as you climb up your career or whatever. Mm. Now, I just want to back up and you don't have to answer it, Stephen, because sure. it's probably personal is... How did you come to get invited to Starbucks? So how did they even know that you existed out there and you get this invite to be, it was the chief learning officer at Starbucks, right? Yeah. So some, so somebody up the hierarchy uh, was from Yum Brands before and they ended up there and they knew me and they wanted me to set up what I did at Yum Brands at Starbucks though. Oh, in terms of the university style yep, and the, the whole system, the whole education system. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's actually a pretty big feather in your cap to be CLO of Starbucks. Yep. It was an interesting time, definitely. So, Anything else from your time at Starbucks that would be beneficial for the audience to kind of get an insight? No, I, I think, you know, you really have to love coffee, right? Now, it's a, now I'm saying love coffee, but... Whichever company you're in, you, you have to love and know your product. And, and one of the things we had was we had coffee tasting. So our, our weekly meetings all started with coffee tasting. Now think about it, okay. Here's a meeting, and, and let's say you're part of my team, right? And so uh, before the Monday meeting, I'll go to you and say, hey, Ken, uh, you're gonna leave coffee tasting on Monday. And you go, okay, that's fine. So you will come. And the first, so think about it, the first five, 10 minutes is you bringing your, you're brewing your favorite coffee, your, your, your blend, right? We have a French press at the end of the room. You put them and everybody's in, you, you put it, you press it, and then everybody has their, either their cups or they brought their, their little uh, uh, shot glasses, so to speak, right? You pour out the coffee and then you lead us in coffee tasting, right? So the first thing you do is you cup the coffee, then you smell it, and then you go, can you smell the hints of chocolate and earthiness and the berries? And everybody goes, hmm, yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I tell you what, the first time I was there, I couldn't smell nothing, though. This is coffee, though, right? But it's a little bit like wine tasting, though. After a while, you start to realize that you have all these aromas in the coffee. And then you go on to, okay, let's take a sip. And then you swirl it around your mouth, and the people will go, can you feel the heaviness on the back of your tongue? And I'm going, I didn't know I had a back of my tongue, though, right? Can you mm -hmm. feel the tingling of the side of your tongue? And I'm going, holy moly, man. But guess what? After a while, you really feel all these different things, and you get to know it. So why am I saying this is if you work at Starbucks, 
you know, one of the things that would really, really be useful is you love coffee. And we had uh, something called a green apron and a black apron. So if you were a green apron as a barista, you kind of, you know, you, you probably love coffee, you work there, but the black aprons are the people who actually studied coffee. We have tests online and most people want to aspire to be a black apron. So, mm, Cool, cool. So Stephen, what um, caused you to leave Starbucks and then what did you do after that? Did you move into your own independent company yep. that you're doing now? So just yes, I had journey on how that happened. Yeah, so I had a uh, situation where my mother was not doing very well health-wise, and I decided that, you know, the current job didn't really allow me to get out to Singapore. She was back in Singapore, right? So I decided to leave, uh, start my own consulting company, so I had a little bit of control more of my time, and I traveled out to Asia a fair bit, um, you know, half a dozen times a, a year minimum, Right, and it allowed me to meet, uh, to get to see her more often, and I, I would say I got to see her at least, you know, at least three more years before she passed on. So. Mm-hmm. And so then, what, what's your business that you moved into? What is it your expertise? So the audience gets a sense of what is it? How do you serve clients? Yeah, so people today. If, if it was a one-liner, we would say, I will help you become 100% more visible to senior management, right? So that's the one line, the one-liner that we would say. However, here was the problem, Ken. So as I set out to, my, to, to develop this consulting training business, so I said, so what is the problem that I'm trying to solve or what would the problem I would like to solve? And here's what I saw most of my career in the corporate world, in the different companies, right? Many people would get bypassed for promotion, not because they were not smart or hardworking. They, they couldn't connect personally with senior management. They couldn't communicate confidently, and they definitely didn't want to stand out. And so I decided I'm going to design a program that teaches people what I call the obvious, to them because they either didn't know it or didn't know how to do it or didn't want to do it. So if, if the organization had a group of people that they wanted to, you know, be a little bit more visible to senior management, then they hire me, I'll come in, do the program, and I'll do this. So I usually start the program with three questions. So Ken, I'm going to ask you the three questions, and it's a yes or no answer, right? Very, very simple, right? So here's the first one. Does the hardest working person always get noticed or promoted? Yes or no? Not necessarily, no. That, that's right. Very good. You're getting it again. So the second question, does the smartest person always get noticed or promoted? Well, I'm going to go with you. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And then here's the third one, though. Does the most loyal person always get noticed or promoted? Oh, for sure not. For sure not. And then, so the next question I ask the people in, in the class, whether it's virtual or not, is then what gets a person noticed or promoted in your organization? And then all hell breaks loose because they suddenly realize it's not just being smart or hardworking or being loyal. It is other things. And then they start to identify other things. And one of the biggest components <clears throat> that come up is how do they show up? in these five situations in front of senior management. So in the end, we tell them, look, there are only five situations that your senior management sees or hears you, right? So here they go. The one-on-one meeting, 
the team meeting is either the small functional team meeting or the large all hands meeting or town hall that you have. The third one is the conference call. The fourth one is the business presentation. And the fifth one is the company social. Nobody knows if you came in, when I'm talking about senior management, whether you came in at 7.30 in the morning or you left at 9.30 p.m. that night. When your name comes up, people go back to their memory of you in one of those five situations that they met you in or you said something. And this is what suddenly people don't realize, that they miss their opportunities to stand out, uh, be more visible, or you know, be noticed by senior management in those five situations. So I had a, a gentleman who was on a call, and I asked him, I said, you know, I said, um, Ben, uh, do you are you do you participate in global conference calls? He says yes. I says how often? He says every two weeks. I said great. How many people on the call? Thirty people on the call. I go wow, that's a big call. So let me ask you a question, Ben. In the last five calls, how many comments or questions did you make though? And then I told him, don't answer. I'll answer it for you. I said zero though. Then he says, how do you know? I said. By the way you interact in this class, I know you won't say anything. So my question to him then was, said, who knows you exist? You're on the call. There are 30 other people. However, you've not said anything. Now, don't get me wrong, Ken, right? It's not about just speaking up. But if in the last five calls you said nothing, then I don't even know you exist. So, And people have to figure this one out and realize, you know, what is talking too much or not participating at all. And, and that's a big deal uh, for many of them because they'll, they'll use this excuse. And I'll say as an excuse, they'll say, my work will speak for itself. And then they beat themselves on the chest and they go, hmm, right? You know, it doesn't. In, in, in the large corporate world, it has to be more than just your work because everybody else is doing good work as well. So. Well, it goes back to this whole concept of influence. And you mentioned something just now, Stephen, which was pertinent, is sometimes people can, uh, what's the word, torpedo their career by talking yep. too much and inappropriately yep. and interrupting. And being that's, that's the other problem. Yeah, exactly. So the two problems, I always tell people there are two problems. Say if I have a right hand, my right hand would be people who talk too much. And on the left hand is people who don't say anything, though. Both ends of the spectrum are a problem, though, because, you know, the guy who talks too much, the moment they interrupt or put their hand out, everybody's rolling their eyes going, oh, my God, here he goes again, right? But nobody tells that person that, though, right? I'm sure you've run across some of those people before, but... Uh, never, it's never happened, Stephen. <laughs> I, I could exactly. have one of them, actually. So, 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 Stephen, you wrote this book, The 5% Zone. Yes. What was your intent with this book as far as what, what is, what, what's the audience and what are they going to get out of this book? What's its purpose? Well, the, the purpose is very simple. It's just visibility strategies to help you to get noticed and rewarded in your organization. It's really targeted at people who are, I would say, middle and higher. In fact, it's, I would like to say anybody, but, you know, that's a bad target audience. So if you're middle management and you're moving up, right, and you want to get noticed and, or you want to be able to articulate your points of view clearly and get noticed by senior management, then this is a book for you because it, it gives you a whole range of tools, techniques, and philosophies that you need to have 
before you even want to do it. Because if you don't have many of the philosophies, then you'll say, well, you know, this Ken guy, he's just sucking up. He's brown-nosing. He's whatever it is, right? And Ken may not have that frame of reference, though, right? Um, so, and, and that's how sometimes what we call the, um, the rules of the game is very different for different people, and they have to learn those rules of the game. At least I lay a perspective for you to follow, right? Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. Though. So what are you meaning by the 5% zone? Is, is the 5% is the 5% that gets noticed? So the 5% is we define is, is being in the presence of people at least two levels above you in the organization, in those five situations, right? So we say your 95% is your, you know, your team meeting, maybe even your meeting with your, your supervisor that you do all the time, or maybe your subordinate. So that kind of stuff is your normal 95%. But when you are meeting with people two levels above and higher, you need to switch the way that you communicate and the way that you deal with those people. And, and the first time when you hear that, people will, their guards will come up and say, well, Stephen, that's not being very authentic, though. And, and, and that's the hardest thing to come across. So here's the way that I try to explain this to people up front, and then they finally realize, though. So here's the question I I say, you know, I'll pick somebody out and I'll say, you know, in the office, you act one particular way, right? And they'll go, yes. I said, now, if you went drinking with your college or university buddies, do you act the same way? And most people will go, no, 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 I'm totally different then. I said, great. And then I asked them, well, if you were married or stuff and you went to your mother-in-law's house, would you act the same way in your mother-in-law's house as you would going out with your buddies drinking, you know, from college or university? And they'll probably go, no, 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 I'm different, right? And if you went to the game... I don't care whether it's ice hockey or football or whatever. Do you act the same way as your mother-in-law's house? No. And if you were a person of worship and you went to that place, would you act the same as you were in your game? No. And people go, no. And let's get, that's right. Because you acted depending on your role. First role was a leader, manager, or somebody working in an organization. Second role was a friend. Third role was a son-in-law or daughter-in-law fourth role you were a fan, and fifth role you were a follower of some worship. We change our behavior based on our role. So the key question for you or for them is, what is your senior management expecting of you from your behavior at your next level? And some people are dumbfounded. They don't even know. Though. And if you don't even know, then how do I know that you're ready? Because as senior management, people always talk about uh, uh, staff or people, right? They'll go, hey, do you know Stephanie Lee? Yeah, Stephanie, you know, that person, she's a solid worker. She just seems a little hesitant or, you know, hedges her answers. Or, you know, if, you, if that's one response, right? If I had another response, I said, hey, what do you think of Stephanie Lee? We love Stephanie. She always adds value. She's clear, succinct. I think she'll go far, though. Or the response could be, what do you think of Stephanie Lee? Stephanie who? If they don't even remember your name, you're toast, right, in an organization. Though. Mm. So what drove you, Stephen, to get into this space to help other people to get uh, sort of noticed? I mean, you could have done a lot of things as a chief learning officer and, you know, in HR. Um, yep. Do you do so some of that other work as well? 
I, I think when I started out, I, when I started out, yeah, I, you know, I've done so many things, whether it's leadership or team building or whatever it is. However, for me, if you can learn all the models in the world and do things. In the end, it comes down to this. Though. Can I connect personally at all levels in the organization? Do I know how to articulate my points of view clearly? Can I come across and communicate confidently? Do I know how to build trust? Can I provide direct feedback, which is how do you say things negatively, positively? We talked about it, right? Do I know how to take ownership and can I coach and recognize? And those are the seven tenets in the model we put in the book. And please learn everything else. But in the end, a, a, a great deal of your promotability or whether the senior, uh, senior management sees you as ready for promotability is many of these aspects in those five situations. And many people don't get it. In fact, I, you know, I've had programs where people go, oh, Stephen, I wish I had this information 10 years ago because you know, I think I've either missed opportunities or shot myself in the foot many times in those meetings. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's just one of those things. So. Uh, Stephen, at, uh, at the peril of promoting you in a different direction, Sure. These, these same uh, principles would apply in any context, meaning let's say I'm in a volunteer organization and I'd like to run for the board. Uh, exactly. Into the AGM and I never say anything. Yep. Uh, and so all of a sudden somebody, you do get somebody to nominate you and then you don't get voted in because nobody knows you, you never say anything, you never add value. So I would argue on your behalf that your principles would apply in any space that I want to have influence. That's right. Any place that you want to get influence, you want to get noticed, and you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot, you know, unnecessarily with this. So, and, and, and it's, you're right, though, and, and some people get it and some people don't. So for me, this is very simple. I'm trying to get as many people to know that here are the rules of the game. It's either you want to play in the game or you don't want to play in the game, though, right? I mean, I tell people, right, look, we all know American football is, has an oval ball. So does rugby, though, right? And so there's a game called Aussie Rules played only in Australia. They all have the same ball. They all have two posts on the field. They all have a referee. But what happens when the referee blows the whistle? The rules are totally different in all three of those games, even though many aspects of the game look the same. So you have to figure out the rules of the game. And you cannot, you know, if, you, if, if Ken, you were playing American football and I was playing rugby, and the referee blew the whistle, and you tackled me, and I'm going, hey, I don't have the ball. Why are you tackling me? It's, that's irrelevant. That's my rules. But it's not the rules of the game being played. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why people don't get it sometimes. Mm. Well, that's very good. Now, we only have a few minutes left, if you can sure. believe it already, Stephen. So how can people find out about you and or get your book? Well, so here's a great deal. So the, the website that they can go to is Winning in the Work World. So one word, right, winningintheworkworld.com. And if they go there, any of your listeners uh, can, they're right on the landing page. They just put their name and email, and they can get a free e-book copy of the 5% Zone. And what's your motivation behind giving away the free book? Let's they, close it here. Yeah, sure. They can get that. They've, they've got all the information in that. That's fine. If they want more information, they can do our online programs or even get me to speak at their, you know, in, the, in, in their 
organizations or their associations or whatever it is. So I'm more than glad to share uh, information and stories about this this five uh, percent zone situation here. Okay, so say that site again. Winning the winningintheworkworld.com. Winningintheworkworld.com, and then you also have uh, crampolcommunications.com. Do, do you not? Yeah, I do. It's uh, it leads to each other. I think winning in the work world is maybe more memorable for people as opposed to trying to figure out the spelling of Kremple and communications s no s, you know that kind of stuff. So okay. well, that's great. So Stephen, you know, as a sort of a, a wrap up for our yes. show, and you know, thanks again for you know spending the time to be with us. What are some sort of final words of wisdom and encouragement to our audience members if they want to go? you know, a little bit further in life and think about some of the expertise that you have accumulated over the years? Yeah, it's very simple, uh, Ken. Um, it is, it, we have a phrase that I use in the book very early on in the book, and it's this. If you are not visible, you are invisible. Let me repeat that one more time. If you are not visible, you are invisible. And what we hope to do is just let people who want to be visible some of the time, 5% of the time, right, give you the techniques and tools so that you can do that, so that you will have a much more uh, successful career uh, in whatever field you want to do uh, in life. Also. Mm. Well, Stephen, thanks for hanging out with us today. It's been a pleasure, Ken. Uh, well, stay on the line with us, Stephen. So, Secrets of Success listeners, you've been listening to Stephen Krempel and his book, The 5% Zone. And as he said, winningintheworkworld.com. Go there, get a free e-copy of that book. And when we think about influence on life, man, this applies to everything. I'm excited about the content that, he, that Stephen has shared. And especially when we're in the first part of the show, just really talking about how you phrase your responses. You know, calling somebody an idiot is not going to really get them to have a positive <laughs> response. But if you say, listen, if there are some ways that we can improve this strategy or this program, you might get a better response. And you know what? We all need a reminder of this. Now, as always, we thank you for spending your most valuable commodity on the show, and that is your time. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. You've been listening to The Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.